Good morning, everyone. It is so good again to be with you this morning and uh, just going through all of these new uh, technical settings and new procedures and everything. We thank you again for your uh, grace and for your patience with us as we're continuing to learn. And all of those who are tuning in uh, via live stream and doing our Zoom watch party, hello, you guys. We're good to be with you too, um, just in a slightly different way. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be leading us in our time of the study of our scriptures this morning. So if you have your uh, Bibles open, I hope now you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And these are the verses that Evelyn just read for us. So as you turn there, maybe perhaps before you turn there, let's say a quick prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, that your church, your people, are worshiping you. God, we thank you for the, the creativity and the technology that you've given us in this time to where we can worship in person, but we can also worship remotely. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be moving in and through those of us in this room now and those of us that are watching. I thank you, God, for your grace. And I thank you for the perspective that you give us. The perspective of to look at this coming end, knowing that the end is near and that Jesus will come again. But I thank you for this passage and how it shows us what we can do in the meantime. Pray you bless this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, as you can see, on the uh, sermon title for today is called End Time Ethics. I was trying to make it sound dramatic. I hope I, hope I did in some way, but I don't want it to be like a the end has come kind of a thing. I don't want it to sound apocalyptic. Um, but I want to clarify a little bit about the, the sermon, just to make sure that we're all on the same page here. When I talk about end-time ethics, what I don't mean is I don't mean end-time positions or end-time views, right? This isn't going to be a sermon about um, what we would define as eschatological positions. It sounds very complicated, but it's just about the study of things the last days, right? This kind of a look like, it's a look at that, it's a study of that. But our passage this morning, it doesn't explain, it doesn't explain how these last days will come. Rather, it's just the reality that they will. And when we're looking at this passage, when we're looking at this letter from 1 Peter, we see this, and this is a, a stunning statement from Peter, given to these people. And as believers, we need to take note of this. So this is important. We need to take notice because, as a theologian Karen Job says, what one believes about the future shapes how one lives today. So then, as strangers in exile, something we've been saying uh, throughout this whole series, strangers of a different sort, our ethic, meaning our set of principles and motivating actions, operate with the end in mind. 
But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does living in the already and not yet look like? What does it feel like? What, is it, what does it feel like for believers living out their obedience to Christ in what will be and what the unbelieving community will see? How will our posture as Christians living Christ's likeness when we know that the end is near? What is our posture in that? And as we've been walking through 1 Peter, when it comes to this posture, this end time ethics, as strangers and exiles, we are called to live with prayerful expectancy. We, to, to live in loving stability and to give gracious hospitality. And those are going to be the three areas that we're going to focus on this morning. So first, I want to pull, turn your attention to verse 7. Verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Have you guys ever seen the movie um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World? Only the children responded, and I know they haven't seen it. But you guys don't have to say, like, ah, oh, yes, or boo, you don't have to do any of that. Yes, but that's all I heard was children's voices at that. It's this funny, it's a kind of a dark comedy. It's a movie that was made a few years ago. It has Steve Carell in it. And it's a really interesting movie because it's about um, an asteroid that's about to hit Earth. And the, the difference is it's kind of a funny thing because it explores this scenario of what it would be like if everyone knew, everyone in the world knew that the, the world was ending. But instead of it being like this, you have 24 hours before the world is going to perish, we need to send astronauts into space. That doesn't happen. Instead, it says you have three weeks. So the world is given three weeks. It hasn't yet happened, but it is happening. The reality is happening. And this opening scene is Steve Carell. He's sitting in his car and he's listening to the radio. He's in a kind of suburban neighborhood. It had just rained. It's dark outside. And he's listening to the radio. And it says, the final mission to save mankind has failed. The asteroid is set to collide with Earth in three weeks' time. And we'll be bringing you our countdown to the end of days, along with all of your classic rock favorites. And that's the funny part. But then what he does is he meets the, the other character to where the conversation, the big question, is brought up, where she asks, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And he says, oh, I don't know. Catch up on some me time, find God, maybe move around some chairs. And that is the portrayal of this reality that we often, that the church finds themselves in. We have been given a message of the end is near. And what we do with that time, it matters. It matters with what we do. And I love that sometimes the way that art portrays this kind of candid um, truth to the world is that a lot of us don't know how to respond to that. A lot of us don't even know how to necessarily think about that thinking about like the end, right? So it feels kind of nice to move around some chairs or just kind of do something relaxing. But where we are, where Peter leaves us, is he wants us to sit there. 
He wants us to sit in this moment, the reality of the end being so real to us that it is woven into the actions of our citizenship as sons and daughters of God, and it exudes and comes out into our behavior. And this is a bold claim about the future that's intended to shape our behavior or shape our ethic. Peter is saying, don't withdraw, engage. He says, don't be lethargic, be attentive. Don't be indifferent, be expectant. Don't consume, give with the gifts of grace that God has given you. And what he's doing is he's looking at, he's, he's uh, concluding what he had said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13, where he says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, ready for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and those, those of you, if you've looked at when he says the end is near and the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's setting up a posture of an end-time ethic. What to do in the times and the days that remain? Because these days that remain matter to us. They matter to the church. And how should this first, how should our behavior, behavior excuse me, be first manifested? It should be with expectant prayers. We should be praying to expect God to do something. We should be praying expectantly on God to be moving in and through us. There's a guy, a theologian, old theologian named B.B. Warfield, and he says this. He says, prayer is the very nature, is in, in, in its very nature an act of self-renounce, a throwing of ourselves at the feet of one recognized as higher and greater than we, and as one on whom we depend and in whom we trust. It is most beneficial influence in this hard life of ours. It places the soul in an attitude of less self-assertion and predisposes it to walk simply and humbly in the world. Our, our prayers send and shape our behavior in such a way that they show and demonstrate to the world that we are strangers and exiles, that we are sinners of a different sort. As the world looks at the church, they should see a praying church. Prayer is not a withdrawing action from the world. Rather, it's an expectant engagement of witnessing God's will being done. When Jesus would go and when he would withdraw to pray, it wasn't just to get a little me time. He was, he was praying with the inspectant engagement for what God is doing, to follow in the Lord's will. The nearness of the end is, this, is not a daunting, scary word that should be tossed around. Rather, it should be an encouragement to live in the reality of our King's arrival 
as his citizens. What should we be doing with expectant prayer? As, as a philosopher Jamie Smith puts it, we need to be awaiting the king. We are awaiting the king. And by praying in this reality, we are understanding that we've been brought into a new narrative. Through prayer, we are reminded that we are brought into a new story, a new narrative, a grand story of redemption. And it's in that that we find ourselves that we were, we were brought into the story. We didn't choose it, but God brought us into the story to be players within this great drama. But I think it's hard sometimes. Sometimes we read the Bible and it can feel very detached. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read, I read God's Word and it takes a little while to, to start to understand where do I, where do I play? Where, where am I in this? Am I in this? Is this just a document? Is this just something to read? How is it that God has brought us into this grand redemptive story? Well, I want to kind of throw some imagery your way. I want you to think about this grand drama, this grand redemptive drama. I used to do acting. I used to teach acting, so just bear with me for a while, little while. I'm going to use theater, theater lingo. This grand drama, what if we were to look at the scriptures and we were to see it in a series of acts of a story being told, a story that's not yet ended, and a story that we have been brought into. The lights are on, the band is cued. Act one, creation. We hold up our Bible, we see act one, the setting of everything that follows. Act two, God chooses Israel. The story begins by God choosing these people, Israel. And there's this tug and pull tension of a rejection of him, a rejection of their sinfulness, but an ultimate promise that stays strong and, and stays true to the storyline of what God has done, act two. But this tug and pull, this tension continues and continues, and the audience is asking for where is the hope? Where is the hope? We are waiting for the answer. And finally, we see act three, when Christ is born. The crowd applauds, says, oh, bringing his accomplishment of the gospel. But the, but the story changes. The audience is introduced to now a concept of the story being turned for God sacrificing his one and only son to die on the cross and to be buried. The stage lights go out, the house lights go on in intermission. The audience is left with a wanting, a wanting and a, and a feeling of, of loss. But that's not where the story ends because Act 4 begins with resurrection. Act 4 begins with resurrection. Jesus ascends and sends his Holy Spirit and establishes his church. Now, if we're reading the Bible correctly, there's a fifth act. There's a fifth act. The final conclusion, the finale, with Christ being united 
with his bride, the church, in the new heavens and the new earth. And as exiles, as people in this grand redemptive story, we are placed in the, clo- in the closing acts of Acts 4, the church, and Act 5 of the completion of God's redemptive story, where Christ's death, his resurrection, and his heavenly authority as Lord of Lords has already happened, but he has not yet returned. But what I want you guys to see from this is using that example is to say that all of us have a part to play in this. All of us have a part to play in this redemptive story, and it begins with prayer. It begins with praying in such a way that you expect God to be moving in and through you. In and through you. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be sober-minded for prayer. Let's read on to what it means to live in loving stability. So this is verse 8, loving stability. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that even mean? I don't know if you guys got stumped there, but I looked at it, I said, what does that mean exactly, Peter? So Peter, he's doing something here. He's, he's, Verse 8 is a continuation, again, of chapter 1. Like I said earlier in that first chapter, or first verse, it's looking back to chapter 1. And Peter is instructing his readers that a mutual love for one another is not just an emotive response, but it is a cultivation of a decision of the will leading to action. Let me say that one more time. Mutual love for one another is not just an emotive response, but a cultivation of a decision of the will, of the decision of the will leading to action. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 says, Since you have been purified, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Another word that this constantly is, is deeply. Love one another deeply. So why is he saying that still? We still haven't answered that question yet. But what I want to say is that this verse, that, that statement was, was circulating in the early church because we find it in James 5, verse 20. James 5, verse 20 says virtually the same thing. He says, let that person know that whatever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So where are they getting this from? They're getting this from Proverbs 10, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it said, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. So does Peter mean that love covers over, like if we do really loving things, then the bad things that happen, you know, they're okay. They're just, they're, they're taken care of. They're out of the way. Is he even saying that our love covers or maybe perhaps even atones for another's sins? 
What are we talking about when we're referencing Proverbs? Commentators believe that it is not that. And looking through this in more in-depth, we see that the love that they received, that this love is a new love, that this love was given by the Holy Spirit. And this love that he's talking about, that covers sins, this love is something that they received, that exudes from them and permeates through their entire community. It is a love that covers, a love that has a covering, kind of a, you could even say a, a smothering effect. When faced with temptation, when faced with sin, think about like a flame, a flame being put out by a blanket. A flame is being thrown on it, it's being covered, and that flame is smothered by the weight of this type of blanket. I have a, a personal example of a time that I've seen this love cover a type of temptation of sin. So this was back in high school. I had just become a believer. I was a, I was a, yeah, maybe a believer for like a few years or so. And there was like a youth group, group of friends of ours. And I remember that this was, this was high school Mark. And high school Mark had just gotten through a breakup. It was a, it was a, it was actually, to be fair, it was actually a really mature way of like everything ended. It was, so don't worry. Um, it was, it was a, for all high school standards, it was pretty mature. But I was upset because the, the girl had moved on and I thought that there would be like at least a year of the mourning process, you know? And so I was kind of caught with the, what happened? here kind of thing. And this is, we had, we had this mutual friend, and this mutual friend was always the one who would be like, how are you doing? And you're like, yeah, I'm good. And she's like, no, how really are you doing? You know, she like wanted to talk serious. So we were sitting there, and we were at the Starbucks, and I was telling her about why I was upset. And I remember this moment. Remember, all of us were believers, but it was just she and I talking at the Starbucks, and I remember as I began talking with her, this anger rose in me. But it, it didn't come out in shouting. It, I remember looking at her, and I was inviting her to gossip. I wanted to talk about them. I wanted to, to gossip. I wanted to express in a sinful way what I was feeling. And the reason why I remember this story so, mo so much is that when I remember her face of knowing exactly what's going on, and I remember her refusal to partake in any of the things that I was inviting her to do, have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, you want to say something really mean or you're, or someone's, or someone's gossiping to you. And then there's that refusal of just silence. Like things are really quiet because they didn't respond the way that you thought they would. That was that moment. And I remember sitting there and I remember feeling convicted about it because her refusal to partake in sin, to partake in, in this gossip, 
it left me, it left the conversation very awkward. But here's the good news about it, is that in that, it was her, it was her love for her friends and her empathy for me and my pain that she was able to navigate gospel truths in that moment, and not like in a superficial way, in a real meaningful way that had a lasting impression on how one handles those moments. Because I was the one who was doing that, and I was rebuked through love in silence, but it was her love that covered that sin to to continue anymore. I was able to see, I was able to move above my circumstance and to see the scenario and the temptation at hand and to see what, what really was going on. And obviously at that point I was probably pretty vulnerable. So I was like, I'm just really hurt right now, you know, or something like that. Some high school mark thing. The power of the gospel is at work in our lives when the love that was given to us by the Holy Spirit stabilizes uh, others, when it has a stabilizing effect on the community around us, when we're brought into the invitation to be ungodly, to, to perhaps sin, to gossip, whatever it may be, the gift of the love that the Holy Spirit has given us is a stabilizing love that can cover and smother the temptations of sins. This is from the Holy Spirit that it heightens, the Holy Spirit heightens our conscience and our awareness of sin. So how then when we're thinking about that love, when we're thinking about that love, that, that grace that's been given to us, and we're meeting it with expectant prayer, and we have this new stable love that's been given by the Holy Spirit, what do we do with that? We give gracious hospitality. That's going to move into our next part of verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11, it says this, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And we're going to come back to that, that last part of that verse. But as you can see here, as you're looking through this, the focus is on loving God and loving people. Right? The focus is on God. Loving God, loving people. We are stewards of a gift given by grace that we then use to give grace. We give that same grace that was once given to us. But I'll be honest with you, because this, this last part was a bit challenging in this, as I was reading this last passage, because 
I think hospitality, hospitality is a mark of every culture's identity, large or small. Hospitality is something that we tangibly look at when we look at different cultures, right? Cultures have some, some value hospitality, some don't value it as much, right? But what we do is when we compare, we examine, we, we praise, we critique hospitality. And this is something that you've noticed if you've traveled abroad, if you've gone to different, uh, different places in the world, you see that this is different. A couple of, exa- of examples. If you go to Guam, Guam, very hospitable. I used to live there, very hospitable, but it all operates on island time. This can be a little weird if you're an American and you're used to like a set structure of timeliness because when it's taken like 45 minutes for your food to come out and that's just the norm, you got to realize that it's not because they're not being hospitable, it's that they just don't know when your food's coming out. And so that's a, a classic mark of a Guam restaurant is when you ask them, they say, I don't know. I don't know. But if you go to Japan, Japan is very hospitable, but they take a different approach. They're very caring about the customer, right? They care a lot about the experience of that person, of the customer. I remember being in in an airport going through Japan, and I remember um, buying chocolates for friends, and they were like, they, they took the chocolate, then they wrapped it. Then they wrapped it again. Then they took an ice pack, put it in the ice pack, wrapped it, a bubble wrap over the ice pack, wrapped one more time. That's like five wrappings. And then tied it with a bow and then handed it to me with both hands. That's like the best chocolate giving experience that I've ever had. I, I, I mean, and then when you open it, you're like, oh, it's precious. You know, it's like, you know, and you're like, look at this chocolate. In Americans, we value, like in the States, what we value, I think is, well, let me say, you could disagree with me, that's okay. That's okay, this is more anecdotal. Uh, I think we value personable hospitality. If we can identify with the person serving us, then our experience is better, right? That's like, I know, thank you. Yeah, uh, amen, yes. Uh, We can, if we identify with someone um, even if they're having like a bad day, you know, if a waiter or waitress is having a bad night, we're still going to tip them extra if they were nice to me because we get it, right? We get it. Even though that standard wouldn't necessarily be in different cultures. But when we look about at hospitality, and I look at this verse, I ask myself, well, what's the difference then? If hospitality is a, a, an identity of every culture, what makes the church's hospitality different? What makes us any different? What makes us different, I think, are two big things, in, the, in two ways in that our hospitality is, is marked by grace. I think it's marked by sacrificial hospitality and supernatural hospitality. And as we're uh, thinking about and applying prayer, and we're applying the love that that the Holy Spirit's given to us, we're going to think about hospitality, gracious hospitality, sacrificially and supernaturally. So sacrificially, verse 9, be hospitable without complaining. So we can see the obvious instruction of that. Like you can pick up your Bible, and and if you're complaining, if you are complaining, you can read it and you're like, okay, yeah, okay. 
You shouldn't be complaining about hospitality. Because obviously, yes, don't invite someone over to your dinner and then complain about them after they leave for taking up your night. Right? We can, we can take that. Don't complain about your hospitality that you're giving, that you're, you're offering. But this can be interpreted just more beyond that because that one circumstance doesn't, that doesn't factor in all circumstances. And it doesn't even factor in necessarily the context of this because this instruction, be hospitable without complaining, is for the Christian who actually has some valid reason to complain. Like, this verse is the recognition that sometimes your hospitality will cause a legitimate inconvenience to you. Such that serving without complaint will cause you and cost a personal sacrifice. The audience that Peter is addressing, this is the church that was um, in and about to be in un under more persecution. And they had to be very careful about the household actions, about what the households were doing in the public square and what the, what the, the public thought of these households because at this time, travelers, Christian travelers traveling from one church to another, they couldn't just stay at every inn. They couldn't just stay at every kind of hotel. There were dangers. And so it was up to the churches in those towns to, pay, to give hospitality to those traveling Christians so that they would be safe. But this was the time when just people would just show up. Right? People are just traveling, and sometimes they could write a letter if they knew them. Sometimes they would write something, letting them know. But most of the time, what we can factor in this is that the church was experiencing an influx of travelers, an influx of visitors, and they would just have finished their dinner, and they'd open up the door, and, hey, this is a so-and-so from the other church. Great. Wonderful. Come on in, you know, and they would need to, and they'd be needing to show them hospitality. And that's what he's addressing. Peter is addressing that kind of moment. We can imagine the knocking late at night from a person that you don't really know, from the church across town and that household, would be then obligated to provide a meal, spend time with them, find them a bed, make them a bed, give them a place to sleep. But I think that that's difficult in any circumstance. I think in any season of life, giving gracious hospitality can be a challenge. It can be a challenge, and it's in that moment that I want you to remember, and I want to encourage you to remember that your hospitality is completely unique to the church because it's sacrificial. That hospitality can cost you something when you are giving grace. When you are giving the grace that you have received, you're giving it to someone. When the world says that you have every right to shut your door, to say, come back later, the church shows grace instead. The church is gracious 
instead. You give sacrificially, and it, at times, it will be so unusual, it will be so weird that all of your neighbors will notice. All of your neighbors will know that this is the house where people serve others. And this is what we value. Honestly, this is what we value about the table. That's using ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. What more of an extraordinary action could it be than someone graciously serving another at a cost to themselves, but for the purpose of to show that grace and perhaps even to show that they too have been invited into this redemptive story, this grand narrative. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But the churches hospitality is not only sacrificial, like I said, it is also supernatural. Supernatural. This is verse 10, focusing in on verse 10. Just as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Now, I find tremendous comfort in that. The gifts that we are given for gracious hospitality don't often look the same. They look in the same in the sense that they're from the same Spirit, they're from the Holy Spirit, but our personalities, our personalities are kept in mind. There's a unique gift that God has given each one of us to use, to use to serve others. It isn't a cookie cultural uh, standard here. The only expectation is you love people you're serving and you use the gift God has given you. This is, a, this is a, a shorter statement of an expounded version of from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, where he says, Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God who produces each gift in each person. And he would continue on to define these spiritual gifts wisdom, faith, knowledge, gifts of healing, prophecy, and different and others. But what does this mean? It means that our hospitality, our hospitality as strangers and exiles, is unlike any other in the world. It's unlike any other in the world because it is sacrificial and it is supernatural. Within our hospitality is an opportunity to show others the story that we have been brought into, the grace that we have been given through the grace that we give them. Our supernatural Holy Spirit-given gifts come from the gift of grace given so that we can give it to others in this we give God the glory. And that's what I love about this, this closing, is as, as Christians, we're living with the end in mind. Our ethic is an end-time ethic, but it's a continual ethic of giving. It's an ethic of grace, of hospitality, 
of being aware of the love that we have that will cover a multitude of sins and invite those lost and invite our fellow believers to see the story that we've been brought into. And so that's why I think in, as we end, I think it'd be fitting to end in this last statement that Peter gives in verse 11 as our final kind of invitation as we think about that. If anyone speaks, let it be one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to give us the perspective of the right reality that you would continue to show us the ways that you are moving in and through us so that our message that we give and that we share and our ethic that we practice would be one of redemptive grace. Thank you, God, for your son. Thank you for Jesus, for him for his death and resurrection, bringing us into this grand redemptive story so that we see that we have a part to play in this, that you invite us into this story and you give us grace so that we would give grace. And I hope, in, I hope God, that in that process, you would help us become more hospitable, that you would show us the true gift that it is, the sacrifice that it costs us, but the supernatural power that it has. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.